The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, it has been quite a week in U.S.-Africa relations with China, kind of squeezed there in the middle. I mean, you know, for I, I put together our newsletter every day for our subscribers and it has just been one drama after another. And if you haven't been following it, I highly recommend then you subscribe to our newsletter because uh, minute by minute, let me just kind of walk everybody back over the past few days. Uh, going back to last Thursday, uh, the United States announced that it's stripping Cameroon of its uh, free trade access into the U.S. market through the African Growth and Opportunity Act known as AGOA. Uh, President Trump notified Congress that he will terminate Cameroon's preferential trade access uh, due to persistent gross violations of internationally recognized human rights. Interesting, that is not a message that we've heard from the Trump administration almost anywhere else in the world. So we're going to get into that a little bit more. Then on Friday, we were treated to a a tweet storm storm from uh, U.S. Ambassador Kyle McCarter, who angrily responded in Kenya to an article in the Kenya Star newspaper about a report that the Nairobi to Mombasa expressway uh, was going, the Kenyan government was going to switch from a U.S. consortium led by Bechtel to the Chinese. And boy, did he let it have it. A big picture with the newspaper going fake news in classic (laughs) Trump style. (laughs) Bloomberg and Daily Nation then came out the next day with reports that contradicted the Kenya Star report. So we are very confused on the status of the expressway from Nairobi to Mombasa, but that was an interesting drama. On Tuesday then, Ambassador Kyle McCarter, also in Nairobi, took a swipe at the Chinese at the American Chamber of Commerce Summit that was being held this week in Nairobi, when he again implied this debt trap diplomacy narrative came up, saying that the United States is all for transparency and we're not for debt. Again, implying the Chinese. Uh, finally, then, in Cape Town, the Assistant Secretary of State, Francis Fanon, he's America's top energy diplomat. Boy, he came out swinging against both China and Russia at the Africa Oil Week conference that's going on in Cape Town. Let me read you, Kobus, a couple of his quotes, and then I'm going to get your reaction to all of this. Uh, so Assistant Secretary Fanon said, all countries face a choice on their investment path transparency and best practices, or do they fall under the spell of opaque forces? Ooh, opaque forces. Mm -hmm. I guess he's meaning uh, Russia and China there. Uh, Also, he said, be careful. Fast and loose money often comes with high interest rates, unclear terms, and a lack of respect for the domestic population and the environment. Today's quick deal, he said, over time, listen to it, Kobus, here it is turns into a debt trap that slowly erodes a proud nation's sovereignty. So, Kobus, there we are. Uh, it had been a quiet past few months from the U.S. in Africa. It had been, we have not heard much on the debt trap. In fact, going all the way back to June, when they announced the Prosper Africa 
policy in Maputo, uh, Mozambique, they didn't even mention China. And there was this sense that maybe the Americans have moved on from the debt trap narrative, in part because it doesn't seem like it's gaining any traction anywhere in the world. But as we saw from last week, that is no longer the case. What do you think is going on, Cobus? Yeah, the debt trap's back. <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, the you know we it's gotten such pushback within you know acad- American academia and think tank circles. You know, this is very very kind of powerful people. You know, kind of came out in in high level pro uh, platforms like the New York Times, for example, really pushing against the debt trap narrative. Um, and then, it, as you said, it also doesn't seem to be getting any real traction in the developing world. But still, you know, kind of here it is. Um, I. I was very confused about why now suddenly, um, you know, kind of why, why are we seeing this, you know, it's suddenly kind of cropping up from several different uh, different people at the same time in the same week, um, you know, with, with a different administration that I would have assumed that that is a kind of a new strategy. Um, with the Trump administration, you know, it's more of a kind of a zig and zag kind of, you know, strategy as a whole, you know, frequently. So um, so it's, it's very difficult to say whether this is this really is going to be a, a dominant theme, you know, in, in, in the relationship going forward for the next few months or whether it just cropped up and will die away again. Well, we're going to take a deep dive now into one of the topics. There's way too much to figure out for all of it. And we will come back to some of those others, particularly what's going on in Kenya. But let's focus our attention today on Cameroon and what's going on there, in part because this, in in my view, is probably the most interesting of the different kind of dots on the chart about what the Americans are doing in Africa. And again, how the Chinese play into all of this as well. So we are so thrilled to have on the show for the first time Chris Roberts, who's an instructor in political science at the University of Calgary, and he's also president of African Access Consulting. He's an expert on uh, West Africa and particularly on Cameroon, and I've been following him on Twitter for many, many years and just blown away by the encyclopedic knowledge that he has about uh, Cameroon's international relations, and he's staying up extraordinarily late to speak with us uh, after a hockey game in Canada. So fitting. Welcome to the program, Chris. We really appreciate it. Yep, I'm playing up to the stereotype, aren't I? <laughs> you really are. Do you have your poutine and your, uh, you know, <laughs> your Molson somewhere close by? Uh, sometimes, <laughs> okay. yes. Not tonight, though. Okay, fair enough. Uh, okay, let's let's just kind of do you know start simple because I think a lot of people may not have been following this Cameroon story. The you know Trump you know last Thursday says that as of January one twenty twenty, no more access for the Cameroonians into the United States market for AGOA. Give us a little bit of the background as to why you think the U.S. took this action and what precipitated it. You know, I've been trying to piece together some kind of a backstory, and I've been trying to even um, uh, contact some people that have been working in both Washington and in New York around the United Nations to try and get a sense of if they have a, if they have a, a sense of the background for why this happened now. I mean, this happens on Halloween day, which is the same day. I am pretty sure that Congress was, was passing one of the impeachment votes, but there's no way that this particular story was going to push the impeachment story off the front pages. Right. I mean, it's not, it's not a big story in the United States. It's, you know, Cameroon, nobody talks about Cameroon. It's really sort of a a sideline. It wasn't going to make a big uh, media impression. The thing is it did get picked up in the media. Cameroonians, both the, um, I'm going to say the Anglophones, but 
the people that are are pushing back against the the President Bia's regime in the uh, northwest and southwest regions of the country, particularly, were very excited about that announcement because it looked like for the first time the White House was actually recognizing that the Cameroon government needed some kind of signal from the United States that they needed to do something different. And so it looked at first, it looked like it was, you know, maybe this is the Trump administration administration doing something that was um, signaling maybe a change in policy by the United States. If you dig a little deeper, though, and as you, you, you mentioned, um, there's many African countries that benefit from the AGOA, uh, from AGOA eligibility, which creates a bunch of uh, duty free uh, access to the U.S. market for a whole range of products, right? It can be agricultural products, it can be extractives, including oil, but it, particularly it, it can be textiles. But if you actually drill into what Cameroon exports to the United States, Cameroon is one of those countries which is AGOA eligible, but barely benefits from the AGOA um, duty-free access. So this was a on one hand, it was an important signal that the White House was paying attention to Cameroon, but in terms of the economic effects, they were minimal. They're going to be minimal in Cameroon. It's going to have no effect on the government. And it's going to be minimal in terms of any impact on American importers. So it's symbolic. It's useful as a symbol, but is there going to be follow-on? And that's what everybody's looking for now. Is this just a one-off, uh, low-risk low pain uh, policy or is there is this the first signal that if the BIA regime doesn't change their policies related to uh, both political opposition and uh, the what we call the anglophone crisis is there going to be follow-on policy and that is unclear at this point you know kind of taking it back slightly um you know paul bias uh, is, is one of the longest serving presidents in africa um he's been in power since 1982 um he's famously you know corrupt i recently saw i recently saw a, a report by deutsche welle which said that um that he had recently racked up a 179 million dollar hotel bill in, um, in in switzerland um you know one doesn't i think as an african leader stay in power that long without significant backing from from Western powers. So, can you unpack a little bit, like you know, kind of who who propped him up through the years, um, and then kind of how how things have changed since China, you know, became a, a more active in Africa? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, you know, here's Cameron that's been independent since 1960, and they've had two presidents during that period. The two presidents have didn't get to stay in power for long stretches of time because um, they put Cameroon on the same kind of development trajectory as let's say a Botswana, right? Cameroon is still considered a, a low income country. It's GDP per capita barely pushes above 15 or $1,500 US. And yet the country is rich, of course, in natural resources, extractives, timber, cocoa, coffee, palm oil, uh, really important ports for the region. It is a central node for, it is the, the dominant economy in the Central African region. It has all of the natural and, and the human capital to be a dominant economy driving development or prosperity or however you want to call it, and it's never reached there. So how does somebody stay in that long? Of course, during the, the end of the Cold War, that Cold War period, France, of course, strong influences 
on Cameroon. I think today the French influences on Cameroon are not as strong as some people think they are. I think it's still important, but it's not as strong as people think. The United States has been there. Uh, the United Kingdom has um, economic interests there. Even, even my country, Canada. Cameroon and Canada have had diplomatic relations since 1962. It was the first Francophone African country where Canada set up an embassy, and we've had a long-term development relationship with that country, right? Here's, here's a country that's like Canada, has a 80% majority and a 20% minority, and Cameroon just happens to be the opposite of Canada, right? The Francophone majority and the Anglophone minority. Canada is the opposite. So we've had a strong relationship. That means we've poured in um, hundreds of millions of dollars into that country as well. Fast forward to, let's say, the 2000s. And of course, then you see the rise of China. We've And we've talked about this before through through email. Um, China's level of, of investment, but also now uh, lending to Cameroon has uh, grown substantially over the last 10 years. Russia is starting to get involved in, in Cameroon. Gazprom is the offtake for the natural gas that's produced offshore Cameroon. So, so China and, and Russia now are, are much more uh, important economically to Cameroon. So as the West shifted towards paying a little bit more attention to human rights, again, there's lots of hypocrisy. The, the, the obstacle then becomes, how do you um, maintain your economic interests, have your rivalries with your growing rivalries today with China and Russia? And but still try and not enable the regime to maintain bad governance practices or bad economic policy at the same time as trying not to absolutely impose your will and then alienating not just Cameroon, but other African states further into, let's say, the Chinese or the Russian. And I hate to use the phrase, but I'm going to use it sphere of influence. Hmm. So, yes, the West is culpable for maintaining this regime for a long, long time, the regime has made moments where it's moved to multi-party democracy, right? And it's it's made commitments to uh, getting rid of, you know, making economic change so that they could have uh, debt relief. But then it's gone on to um, use the, the coercive hammer every time there's any kind of political problem. So the context for the American decision, if, if I understand correctly, is the ongoing uh, – are they calling it a civil war or civil strife? I mean between Anglophone and Francophone parts of uh, of Cameroon. And, and, and the violence has been horrific. That is what the Americans are presumably responding to. The, the Cameroonians for their part – uh, they kind of shrugged when, uh, when when the U.S. made its announcement. Let me kind of read uh, some quotes from uh, Cameroon's minister delegate at the Ministry of External Relations, who uh, Felix Mbayou, who was interviewed by CNN. And he wrote, uh, the least of our worry now is the AGOA decision. The government has no move to make. We have other partners like China, Russia, and Singapore who are ready to do business with us. We have no reaction to the U.S., uh, so, as you pointed out, they haven't really taken advantage of trade with the U.S. They weren't really impressed by what the Americans did. Uh, so, what's the thinking in terms of of what you think the BIA administration is doing in, in Cameroon? Is that do they really kind of leaning into the Russians and the Chinese as their partners? This isn't the first. I mean, the American. Let's say the American ambassador. I think it was last year, twenty eighteen, or might even in twenty seventeen. He had even come out at one point to be 
you know, say something actually very critical of the, of the government because of apparent human rights abuses done by the security services against uh, in the Northwest and Southwest provinces or uh, regions they are not provinces. And there was an immediate and vocal and vicious reaction by officials of the government against the Americans. So they, there's a long history of them not holding back their criticisms of when the, when anybody makes a, a criticism of the regime, whether it's Americans, whether it's uh, the British, whether it's, the EU or Germans, they'll, they'll push back really quickly because I do think they feel they're, they're insulated and they're insulated because of in part the Chinese and the Russian option, but they're also insulated because the Americans still work with the Cameroon military in the North of the country to fight Boko Haram. They're insulated because um, the British and other Europeans have ownership stakes in the major oil and gas producers in Cameroon. And of course, ExxonMobil depends on the Chad Cameroon pipeline to get its oil out of Chad. So you can push back because there is all of this almost impossible to remove or, or this economic um, uh, lever, all these economic levers that the, the, the Cameroon government has to uh, keep the Americans, the British, the French, uh, actually engaged in Cameroon because of these economic interests. So it's not just the Chinese and Russians are out there. It's that you can't move the Chad Cameroon pipeline. So, you know, how much are the Americans going to push against the government? And that's the big question. Uh, we'll see if there's any follow on from this, from this AGOA uh, decision, which the minister is absolutely right. It has no significant impact on the Cameroon economy. Um, we recently had a, a, a another podcast conversation about the the rising influence of, of China in Senegal, um, and uh, you know our guest there was was making the point that even though the French influences have traditionally been seen as as really you know very monolithic in in West Africa, it's it's actually not. Um, as wide-reaching now as it used to be, and that you know, in in the process, um, China has actually eroded quite a lot of French support. Um, is that actually is that true in Cameroon as well? I, yes, I, I would say so. I, unfortunately, many people that are upset with the Bia regime still consider him an absolute puppet of France, and I think that they're not capturing the the um, the position that Bia. You know, here's a wily guy, and not just him, but the people around him. They know how to stay in power within the country, but they also know how to make themselves invaluable to the international community. And that doesn't just mean Russia and China now. It doesn't just mean France. The French are important, but they're not. I would say that in almost every other and almost every country in West Africa, the French are not the single dominant players that they, they've been even maybe up to 20 years ago. And it is China, but it is also the United States. It's also the EU. It's also um, other actors, right? I mean, the Turks and the uh, uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, they're all bigger actors in Africa today than they were 20 years ago. So this, this continual focus that France has all of these levers, I think, um, is uh, only half true. They have some levers, but they are not the dominant actors. So the actual um, policy... If, whether you're a domestic actor or an international actor, you have to include the French influence, but you can't solely focus on that or else you're missing the bigger picture. 
Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. I'd like to get your take on what you think the optics of this decision by the Americans in Cameroon looks like. It came, and what was interesting was, again, it's puzzling about the timing. And you didn't mention the Russia-Africa summit because it came, I think, a week or 10 days after the conclusion of the Russia-Africa summit. And so, and in the Russia-Africa summit, uh, President Putin uh, made it very clear that we will not meddle in your affairs the way that the Americans do. We will not tie conditions to our investments, to human rights. He echoed the Chinese in so many different ways. So I guess my question is, when we see a, a decision like this from the Americans that comes through, it plays right into the Chinese and Russian talking points about the meddling of European and Americans into a country's internal affairs, about putting conditions on to aid and investment for human rights and things like that. And I'm wondering, how does this, does, do you think this plays like that? Are other African countries looking at this and going, yep, here we go again. This is the same old, same old West of what they've been doing for 50, 60, 70 years. And so that's why the Chinese and the Russians who come along, or the Turks, as you said, you know, these guys don't play those kind of games. What do you think this looks like? Well, I, you know, I think it plays different at different levels within African countries. And, and this is what I think is, is critical. I think when the Chinese and the Russians look at Africa, they are looking at, you know, just to be crass, they're looking at, you know, in international relations, we would call them billiard ball actors. And so the Cameroon state exists and it's led by uh, a current leader. It doesn't matter how that leader uh, got there. It doesn't matter how they stay in power. It doesn't matter what kind of governance they do. That is who we recognize as the leader and are going to work with them. And we'll talk about Cameroon in terms of we will not interfere in your domestic affairs. We will help you develop. The problem with that is, and you know, maybe I think that worked 10 or 15 years ago for China to say that, and most Africans at all walks of life accepted that. But I think they see Africans on the ground, right? Whether you're um, at active opposition against a government or, you know, taking up arms or whether you're just a small business person trying to make a living in an African city or you're a farmer in the country, you do not see the country, your own country that way. You do see that there's um, policy differences, that there are problems with governance, that the state is not monolithic. So you start to hear this Chinese language and then you see what the Chinese are doing in terms of supporting a government that maybe does not have a lot of actual legitimacy in the country. And then Chinese actors, whether they're big mining companies or oil companies or even small individual merchants or even small scale miners start to show up in your country. And it seems like the rules that you're living under don't apply to them. And so there is, if country after country after country, you start to see not mass uprisings against the Chinese presence, but you're starting to see questions about, okay, yes, maybe the Chinese can bring us some money and do some roads, but why are they bringing in all their own labor to build the road? Why are they not following environmental rules? Why do they get this land and we don't have access to that land? 
So I think the West needs to focus on not targeting countries, but targeting regimes while they still focus on issues of private sector development or uh, social development and trying to work with um, people on the ground. And I think that strategy can work if it's well thought out. I don't you know, I can't assume that that's well thought out in the Trump administration, unfortunately. But it would be nice if you could think that they had thought that far ahead. As you mentioned, there, there's so many new actors in Africa and they've all been ramping up their activities so much. Um, how does this, how does that affect the kind of calculus of someone like Paul Bia, someone who, this kind of political survivor who's, you know, who's, who's, who's a lot of, whose energy goes into keeping on surviving um, and keeping, you know, staying in the position where he is. If, if one is an unscrupulous kind of, you know, African leader intent on the kind of lifelong presidency, does one's position get easier or more difficult when there's more and more international actors involved in on the continent? Um, absolutely, it gets easier when there's more involved. So, I mean, I've been sort of over the last 10 years, I've been sort of seeing the same patterns developing after the whole rise of NEPAD, right, in the night in the 2000s and real changes by governments, the introduction of, of term limits, real multi-party elections, uh, better fiscal management, better focus on private sector development and actual spending where it should go. In the last 10 years, we've seen um, the, you know, authoritarian trends rising, governance declining, and that has a lot to do with governments that have multiple potential international partners for money, for uh, weapons, for uh, diplomatic support. That is pretty much what happened in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in Africa, where governments could play the Cold War card and work both sides, or you know, at one point, all three sides, including China, to actually um, insulate themselves from being too dependent on one side and having to follow a certain, you know, economic policy or diplomatic policy. So that that is problematic. It's not problematic for the countries that have institutionalized um, democratic trajectories. It is highly problematic for those countries which haven't. And so you'll see that, that countries that had weakly institutionalized constraints on executive power, they're more susceptible to this multiple access to money. And, and we're seeing that in Cameroon. We're seeing that in many other countries across the continent. And that is precisely the problem. Money that's available without any kind of conditionality. I'm just trying to figure out, uh, from everything that you've said, what's the point of what the Americans did? Because on the one hand, it's not strong enough if they wanted to really try and push Bia from power to really hurt Bia. On the other hand, it's, you know, it's symbolic in the sense that of all the countries in the world that they, you know, the Trump administration, who's never made human rights a priority, they picked their 128th largest trading partner. They do about $430 million of trade, which for a country like the United States is pocket change. This is a country that, of course, embraces North Korean Egyptian, Saudi Arabian, Chinese, and even Russian to some extent, all those dictators wholeheartedly embraces. So it doesn't seem like the United States holds a lot of credibility on human rights anymore, which it used to. 
So I'm just, I want to close our discussion now, just kind of trying to figure out what's the point of what they're doing? Because it's not part of a bigger, broader policy in Africa where they're singling out a lot of the other authoritarians who you've pointed out are on the rise. Democracies on mm-hmm. in retreat in many parts of Africa. So they picked on this one country, this one government, and I can't figure out why. Um, can what's what? What do we walk away from our conversation left to think? <laughs> I, I I've been I've been pondering that exact question for the last four or five days. When it, since we had that announcement, it really seemed to come out of nowhere. The only thing I can think of is that there are within the administration, within the State Department, there is. I, I mean, I think there is actual concern that here is a crisis that is getting worse and worse by the week. And it's been getting worse and worse since late 2016, but particularly since the middle of 2017. And it's getting worse incrementally, but it's it's over time, it's just building into such a crisis and it's so preventable. This is something that is, um, you know, you can't change Saudi Arabia overnight tomorrow. There is not a major, necessarily a major, major humanitarian crisis. Yes, the Khashoggi issue, that's important. The yes, the Saudis and Yemen, that stuff seems completely unmanageable. But if you could make small policy steps to prevent Cameroon from getting worse, and you could have done that maybe two years ago or a year ago, and you find a window as a senior official to say, look, let's get the president to stand up on this because we are lining up maybe some international partners. We maybe have some more things that we can do. We'll signal to Bia that we're serious. The next step might be personal sanctions on members of the regime, uh, you know, the, the, the GLOMAG or any other kind of designated person kind of sanctions, travel and economic. Then maybe we start to rescind our approval of lending from the IMF and the World Bank. U.S. can't stop it, but they can start to say no and send a signal that way. Maybe other stakeholders start to say no. Maybe they add conditions on to some, you know, more conditions to the loans and there's not just a rubber stamp, you get more money. So I think there are people that are aware of the situation within the administration and the State Department that have found an opening that the they could the, the president could agree to. He loves stopping trade benefits, but is there follow-on? And that's where we will have to wait, I think, days or weeks to see if there's an actual follow-on strategy. I'm hoping that somebody in the State Department has found a way to make something happen, but I'm not convinced of it. And you know, even if there's a plan today in this administration, that might not be the plan in a week. Chris Roberts is an instructor of political science at the University of Calgary, and he wrote a Q&A for us on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Uh, I titled it, uh, Does China Benefit from the U.S. Stripping Cameroon of its AGOA Privileges? Yes, no, maybe a little bit of all the above, but it's a fascinating deep dive into a lot of what he's been talking about uh, on the complexity of this situation. We still can't figure out why the United States did it, but maybe that will reveal itself in the weeks to come. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for staying up so late for us. We really appreciate it. Uh, you are prolific on Twitter, and it's an excellent feed that I recommend everybody to to follow. What's your Twitter handle that people can find you? At C.W.J. Roberts. And you don't just only tweet and comment and write about Cameroon. You're also interested in broader African issues, correct? Absolutely. I actually use Twitter for my, my African comparative politics class. I ask my students to uh, sometimes post. I, I use hashtags to cover interesting issues. So I'm, I'm, I'm an African comparativist, uh, but I will 
tweet pretty regularly about Cameroon, but also about any sort of other major political or economic or election issue or security issue happening in Africa. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a, a, you know, finally you can go to bed and have a, a wonderful evening. That's great. Thank you very much. You too. Kobus, listening to Chris, I was just, I'm just confused right now. <laughs> I'm just really, really confused about the direction of American foreign policy in, in, in Africa, but in specifically in Cameroon. I mean, tie together all of the different things that we've been talking about over the past few weeks in terms of what's going on in Kenya, what's going on in Cameroon, what are the Americans doing on this space? And we just, we don't hear a coherent policy. This by itself, as Chris pointed out, would be excellent if it was part of some kind of broader strategic framework. It doesn't seem to be that way. I, for one, argue that this plays right into the hands of the Russians and the Chinese. I I think that this is, because it's not part of a larger policy framework from the Americans, that they're not kind of doing this consistently around the world in other countries as well, it looks like they're just picking on Cameroon. And that provides the Chinese the opportunity to say, you see, we don't do that. You see what's happening in Cameroon? We don't get involved in that kind of stuff. And if you are, you know, Edgar Lungu in Zambia, or you are any of the, or Sisi in Egypt, pick an African leader that is rolling back democratic rights. And when they hear the Chinese say that, they think, you know what? That is music to my ears. So I think, again, this... It's encouraging in one sense because we do like to see government stand up for human rights. I think naturally that's a good thing. But at the end of the day, if it's not part of something bigger, uh, it can actually be counterproductive. Yes. And I mean, also the fact that this took the form of a a trade crackdown, uh, you know, that that has its own set of problems. Not only that, so that the Agoa, the Cameroon's Agoa trade is is essentially negligible. Um, So it it was never going to be that kind of big a stick to hit them with anyway. Um, but then also, you know, there's like some, you know, compare cracking down on trade on an entire country's trade to say, for example, uh, you know, uh, cracking down on the travel and, and banking privileges of, of senior officials in, you know, kind of in the BR government, for example. Those are two different options or two different approaches. And it seems like the, 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 you know, cracking down on trade, to my mind, would be the, the, the last one or the second one, because it, it affects a lot of people who don't, you know, don't have direct power in the country. Um, you know, so, so that also, see, you know, it, it seems to then fit into a wider story that, oh, well, the Trump administration, they're not, not super into trade, you know, um, like, the, you know, kind of the crackdown or like, like kind of break up what the kind of free trade agreements wherever they can. You know, which which is an, uh, a weird place for the U.S. to be, considering how hard previous U.S. administrations had, had, had pushed free trade. Now, two other points to consider for this discussion, and I didn't get a chance to mention this to Chris because I would have liked to get his input on this. Number one is uh, the fact that around the same time in February of this year, uh, the United States also cut some of its foreign assistance uh, to to Cameroon, and at the same time, the Chinese wrote off a portion of the Cameroonian debt. A very small portion, but nonetheless, uh, symbolically, it was important. So it seems like Cameroon is really a a front in the U.S.-China kind of optics battle in Africa, where using it to say we are not engaging in debt trap diplomacy, we're actually writing off debt, and at the same time, the Americans are standing up for some of their principles uh, in a very low-cost way. Certainly, the Americans are not going to do this in places like Djibouti 
or Ethiopia that are strategically much, much more important, or uh, you know, Kenya, where Obama tried to raise issues related to LGBT issues and was pushed back strongly by the Kenyatta administration. We haven't seen that. And again, coming from this administration where the president himself has said that human rights are not his priority, trade and business are his priority. So it's just surprising, especially because, as Chris pointed out, there's a lot of important business that happens on the Chad Cameroonian pipeline and also in security matters, which is also a priority for the Americans on that border with, with Nigeria. So a, a very perplexing decision. What are your final thoughts, Kobus? I mean, just a, my, my hobby horse and also a bit of very like futurist view. I, I, all of this makes me wonder how f- future climate change mitigation, particularly future kind of moves to try and, and lessen um, the use of oil, how that is going to affect West African politics and the future of West African governments. Like once, once there is a real kind of a move against oil, particularly as, um, you know, kind of as non-oil and sustainable technologies keep, keep getting cheaper, keep, you know, kind of becoming easier to, to, to use, um, it's going to be fascinating to see how these kind of strategic, the strategic calculus around, you know, kind of bad governments in, in West Africa, how that changes. If these topics are of interest to you, these are the kinds of things that Cobus and I are writing about every single day for our subscribers and also in our newsletter. Uh, we've been writing about Cameroon. We've been writing about Kenya and the U.S. and also the latest comments from uh, Francis Fannin, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Energy, on warning about fast and loose money. All of these topics, these are the day-to-day kinds of things, the minutiae. So if you are just a casual observer of China-Africa affairs, uh, our subscription is probably not for you. But if you use this for a living, if you're following African events, if you're a China watcher around the world, uh, you're going to want to subscribe to what we're putting out every day because it really is the only place in the world to get this kind of content so deep, so rich, so varied. Uh, we put you know six to seven hours a day putting into this newsletter just to get it out and writing original content, interviewing people like Chris to get his point of view on it. Uh, also, if you want to find out what some of the senior most officials in Washington are reading, uh, you're going to want to subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, so some of the people that we've talked about in this in this podcast are subscribers to this newsletter and also the policy uh, think tanks around Washington are also reading this very carefully as well. So we encourage you to kind of join the Insiders Club and uh, find out more at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Also, if you want to join, we'll throw in an extra month for free. Just use the promo code podcast. Okay. That'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. If you'd like to reach us, don't hesitate just to send uh, us an email. Kobus, I don't think your email is working anymore. So if you want to reach Kobus, I'm going to fix his email. But in the meantime, if you want to reach Kobus, just send me an email at eric at chinaafricaproject.com. I'll make sure he gets it. And in the meantime, I'm going to go and look into why uh, your Kobus at China Africa Project email is not working. So folks, if you've been emailing him and it gets bounced back, don't worry, just send it to me and I will pass it on. So that'll do it for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg. I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. Mm-hmm.